five. We're going to look at uh, read quickly uh, Genesis uh, two, four, and following through verse nineteen. Genesis two, four through nineteen. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his mouth the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Thus far God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to gird up the loins of our minds now, continue to give attention uh, to the serious things before us, and your spirit will help us to understand them and uh, strengthen our confidence, Lord, in the literal account of Genesis chapter 1. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, we're going to look uh, this morning at this hour at the critique of the framework hypothesis. In doing so, uh, we already have anticipated some of the arguments, and we can look back at some other positions as well as we uh, make our way through this. And I'm also going to deal uh, in a little more length than there's on the slides the relationship of Genesis 2 and following to Genesis chapter 1. But let's start with what the framework hypothesis is. Uh, It asserts Genesis 1 is not to be taken as a literal chronological account of creation, but rather a topical account which asserts God created all things. Now it's called a framework hypothesis because it structures Genesis 1 by the framework which we saw there is such a thing as the framework, but also uh, the framework trumps then the uh, individual and specific exegesis of Genesis chapter 1. So all it is is this broad statement that God created and he did so in a, uh, this structure revelation. Now in the Geneva Study Bible, not the old Geneva, but uh, the modern Geneva Study Bible. Finally, some scholars argue the days of creation constitute a literary framework designed to teach that God alone is the creator of an orderly universe and to call upon human beings made in the image of the creator God to reflect God's creative activity in their own pattern of labor. This framework hypothesis views the days of creation as God's gracious accommodation to the limitations of human knowledge an expression of the infinite creator's work in terms understandable to finite, frail human beings. Let me just say in passing, I'm glad he didn't do that with the uh, creation of the redemptive work of Christ. 
The last group of scholars observes the universe gives the appearance of great antiquity. Oh yes? But the phrase morning and evening seem inconsistent with day-age theory and the notion of intervening ages between isolated 24-hour days is not apparent in the text. So the universe gives, great, gives appearance of great antiquity. Well, the universe doesn't give any appearance whatsoever. What we have is one's assumptions when one approaches the universe. Now, there are three main lines of argument uh, that are used for uh, framework hypothesis, and I'm going to deal with those first, and then quickly look, maybe, uh, at evidence for sequential narrative, and there's no conflict between structure and sequence. Now, we know that a stool, different from a chair, a stool has three legs. And so framework is a three-legged stool. And the three-fold arguments then are uh, providence and the relation to Genesis chapter 2, style, and structure. Now, Mr. Frame, or Dr. Klein, began with... Uh, Genesis 2.5 and the operation of ordinary providence. This is where I want to back out and look more broadly initially at the relationship of the two, something the pastor uh, asked that I would do. Now, as I read verses 4 through 19, there is obviously a conflict between the chronological narrative of chapter 1 and the account that's given to us in chapter 2. Now, there have been two approaches to that conflict. The framework approach, which we'll come back to in a moment, says that what we have in Genesis 2 is obviously a uh, thematic and not chronological account, and thus we should interpret chapter 1 that way. But some framework people, along with others, say that in fact what we have in Genesis chapter 2 is a second account of creation. Just quickly look at uh, two of the chronological differences. You read Genesis 2, 5, and it seems to say that um, 5 and following that man was created, then God created these particular shrubs and plants. You see that? And then in 18 and 19, it seems to say that man was created and then animals were created. God took Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree, uh, excuse me, 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And here, the uh, simple English reading uh, is that uh, man was created first and then the animals. So these are the two sections that cause people to uh, uh, suggest that we have here is a second account of creation. Well, which obviously would call into question then the doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. But they're very easy grammatical answers to both of these objections. I want to take the second one first. Now, it's true that as we read the order, and I mentioned to you that in the Hebrew there is a clear grammatical structure for chronological narrative. It usually begins with a past tense verb and with a series of what we call imperfect verbs with the conjunction and in front of them. And when you start with that past tense, the perfect verb with the series, then you read it as, and the next thing that happened was, and the next thing that happened was, and the next thing that happened was. It's called the Vav Consecutive, or the Wakatol. And that's very clear throughout the history books of the Old Testament, that when you have narrative, that's how you understand it. Now, Genesis chapter 1 is very tightly structured with that mark. I didn't deal with that last night. I'll come back to that, Lord willing, uh, at the end of this message. But it's very tight. You've got the perfect in verse 1, and uh, then you begin in verse 3 with this Bob consecutive, and straight on through, it's structured so that each act 
is uh, consecutive to what was before it and precedes what comes after it. And that's clear. That's unmistakable. But now we come to Genesis 19. We also have this law of consecutive. And so you could read Genesis 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. We'll go up to 18. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. So God puts, actually go back to 15. God puts man in the garden, makes covenant with him, says it's not good for him to be alone. And then out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And um, this is kind of a quasi-vav-consecutive. And so both the people that want to say it's a different account, as well as people like Mark Fatata, who argue for framework, saying, well, obviously, um, this account teaches that Adam was created before the animals. But there's an easy grammatical explanation. Often in the middle, well, often, but periodically, in the middle of Vav consecutives, God would use a Vav consecutive for what we would call in English a pluperfect or a past perfect. So it's an action in the past that preceded the action in the past. Now, I'm not a very big fan of the NIV. But the um, uh, NIV gets this one right. Now, the NIV Old Testament interpreters were much better than the New Testament interpreters as well. So the NIV says, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the earth. Uh, Bruce Walkey, in his grammar, another very famous grammar, uh, drew on to the kind of at the top of, of conservative reformed grammars, all interpret this as this pluperfect. The great Lutheran commentator Leupold in his commentary interprets this as pluperfect. And once again for 230 years, in fact, I guess we could say for 1830 years, nobody else in the church had a problem. We're just so bright. Nobody else in the church couldn't read the Hebrew. You see... Is a very easy way to understand what's going on here. And why? Because a text, we talked about the literal meaning, a text that is clearly all the marks of history is not interpreted by a second text that might call it into question, but the other way around. When you've got the grammatical possibility of having this pluperfect, and you've already had explained to you, I mean, you don't remember read. First things first, second things. You've already got Genesis 1. Now you come to this account. There's no reason to create conflict. Now the other place that they create conflict is apparently that we have uh, um, plants created after there was man. Verse 5, now there's no shrub of the earth in heaven. There's no shrub of the field yet on earth, no plant of the field yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist, or springs, used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then, and there's our then, our consecutive thing, God formed man of the dust of the ground. God planted a garden toward the east. Out of the ground the Lord caused every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food to grow. And God put man in the garden. So again, we've got apparently a different chronology than what we have in Genesis 1, where the plants were created on day 3, water was created on day 2, man was created on day 6. So these are the two places uh, that uh, people argue for a different account. Uh, And framework people will argue here then, uh, a more conservative approach and uh, Fatata will take uh, verse 19 uh, in, in the way that others take it and say well obviously we can't take this as uh, a consecutive work and so we can't take chapter 1 consecutively but let me ask him a question how do you know you can't take 2.19 consecutively 
You got the question? How do you know that it wasn't Adam created first in the animals? How do you know that? Because of Genesis 1. He's already made an assumption on the basis of Genesis 1. That the animals were created and then man was created. So having made that assumption from a chronology, that's the only way he's saying there's a conflict. You follow me? Now with respect to verses 5 and following, framework people argue then, Klein started it with his article and and there was no rain, that this proves that God used ordinary providence in creating the heavens, well, particularly in creating the earth. So the operation of normal providence. So that God would not have put plants on the earth until there was a provision of rain to water those plants. And so we know, we read backwards then, that uh, creation was done primarily through ordinary uh, providence. And so we got no shrub um, of the field was yet in the earth, no plant in the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So Klein argues, the unargued presupposition of Genesis 2.5 is clearly that the divine providence was operating during the creation period through processes which any reader would recognize as normal in the natural world of his day. He later adds, embedded in Genesis 2, 5 and following is the principle that the modus operandi, the basic method of operation of divine providence was the same during the creation period is that of ordinary providence at present time. Now, I want you to get that, I want that language to sink in. That God's normal mode of operation was the same in the creation period as it has been in all of history since then. You go on. Hence the 24-day theorist, we're not theorists, she's the theorist, must think of the Almighty as hesitant to put in the plants on Tuesday morning because it would not rain until later in the day. It must, of course, be supposed that it did rain, or at least that some supply of water was provided before Tuesday was over. For by the end of the day, the earth was abounding with that vegetation, which, according to Genesis 2.5, had hitherto been lacking for want of water. If you want to read Klein's article, it's the Westminster Theological Journal, issue 20, uh, 57-58, pages 150 and 151, is this particular quotation. I would say he doesn't know. The question was, would he believe that uh, development of plants was progressive through throwing seeds on the ground? Well, if it was ordinary providence, we'd have to think he made the seeds and threw them on the ground. But he just stays mute on all those questions. Uh, he's, he's an agnostic, he says, with, with the how of creation. It simply had to be by, or, by ordinary providence. But, I mean, really, what you've just said is, is very key that God throws seeds in the ground and let those seeds slowly develop. That's ordinary promise. We make seeds and then throw them on the ground. So, but he doesn't speak to that. He just goes back to this water business. Um, well, first, the text is not dealing with universal defect, but the whole purpose of the text is placing Adam in the garden. Now, go back with me and look at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. There's two very unusual things about verse 4. What are they? Since everything is created in one day. Well, no, that's the word when. So that's, uh, that's a time factor. It, it points back to the work of creation. 
How? Well, I think just the way that it's listed out in the, in the ESV in the way. We're talking about two four. Yeah. Let's sit out like it's a poetic, a line. Okay, poetic. Because what does he do? Second, we don't. Do we normally say earth and heaven? Huh? We say heaven and earth, and the Bible says heaven and earth. I think probably every other place. So immediately you've got a what's called a chiasm in Hebrew grammar: heaven, earth, earth, heaven. Why? The thing in the middle is what is being focused on now. So he's going to say something about the earth. What's another unusual thing about this passage? Created made. Hmm? Where's created made? Well, but that's used elsewhere. I'm talking about in this account it's unusual. It's the name of God. Lord God. Elohim is used, God, in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. That's the name of God, the Creator. The name Jehovah, which was not really introduced until to Moses, but Moses uses it here to make a theological point. He's now talking about a covenant activity. Jehovah is God's covenant name. Those two things are important keys with the third, and that is uh, the phrase, this is the account, which is literally, uh, this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Pastor. Is that an introductory Okay. All right. Which one? Verse four. Yeah. All right. Good sequence. This is an introduction. Moses uses this figure. These are the records of generations of 11 times in the book of Genesis. And each time, it is not a recapitulation, in other words, saying the same thing again. It is an introduction of the subsequent activity that's based upon that which has just been revealed. So, in chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. But now who does chapter 5 deal with? After the introduction of uh, verses 1 and 2. The descendants of Adam. Chapter 5 is the section, and so it is, with uh, Abraham, with Noah, with uh, every other figure. The other ten times this is used, it is an introduction of the next chapter, so to speak, of our 11-chaptered book. So you've got a prologue of 1-1 through 2-3, and now you have 11 chapters. And the first chapter is introduced in chapter 2, verse 4. And what we know from the way Moses uses this throughout the book, that his intention is not to deal with what he's just dealt with, but to have a few transitory uh, transition remarks and to go into next phase. And what's the next phase? Adam, in the garden, entered into the covenant of works. And so the next, uh, uh, this rest of this chapter, the next two chapters, then deal with the covenant and the covenant breaking and the consequences of the covenant breaking. And so this is why then uh, chapter 2 is given to us. It also explains why we've got a few topical remarks in verses 5 through 7. Our, and that's because he's pulling together into day 6 what was going on to highlight now the creation of the garden which was the place of God's covenant activity. So, the text is not dealing with the defect of no water and no man. The text is introducing the fact that um, this was the situation early on in creation. There was no rain, but how is the garden described? Well, there were these springs of water. 
But it has a very unusual river. You know, any place in uh, geography where one river makes four rivers? Now, three rivers might make one river. The Ohio and the Missouri come together and make the Mississippi or join it. But you don't find a river that is so big that as it goes along its way, it branches off and makes four rivers. What's the Spirit showed us? There's no water problem in the garden. This garden is fantastic. And there's no man problem because God takes the man and he puts him in the garden to do what? To cultivate it. And the other thing is, when it says there was no um, plants of the field and shrubs, we don't know what these words mean. But we do know they're very minuscule. They don't encompass all of the vegetation that God has described making in Genesis chapter 1. And so one theory is that these are the plants that God planted in the garden. It does seem that God planted the garden on the sixth day. It's not when he created plants. But he planted the garden on the sixth day because he focuses on these two trees. Uh, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which wasn't any supernatural tree, but a tree distinct, only one of a kind. And God said that fruit's not yours. And a sacramental tree, tree of the life, which again was a unique tree, one of a kind. God planted those trees in the garden and he put man in the garden to cultivate it. And so the twofold defect, if there's a defect, only has to do with the garden, you see. And God is simply saying, I've met all of these things in this beautiful garden. Yes, sir. It's the land around the garden. All right. The word earth, uh, Eretz in the Hebrew, can mean the whole earth. It can mean the land of Israel. And oftentimes, particularly here, we're, we're getting this relationship of the garden now and Israel. Uh, it doesn't mean all of, of the land that God has created. It's not to be taken that way at all. Because the whole focus here, as E.J. Young says, to emphasize the beauty of the garden. Whoops. To emphasize the beauty of the garden, but above all the goodness of God, a contrast introduced. Man is to dwell as God's guest, not in a waterless waste, but in a planted garden. The waterless ground of Genesis 2.5 stands in contrast to the well-watered paradise, which is to be man's earthly home. And what's interesting is that Klein agrees with this approach to Genesis 2.4. But he still insists on having this... Uh, a twofold defect. Second, if you were correct, and the only necessity here is a provision of the water supply, God's already provided for water supply. He made the, uh, the separation of water and land before He created the plants. He did that supernaturally. He created the plants supernaturally. There's nothing there to uh, say that uh, God could not move forward in a normal six-day creation uh, without water. Third, there is no proof that providential working was exclusive. In fact, look at Genesis 1, 9 through 13. Let the waters appear below the heavens to be gathered into one place that the dry land appeared. That was not ordinary providence, was it? Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind. That's not ordinary providence. You see, supernatural things are going on here in day three. And so to insist that day three teaches us that ordinary providence is the ordinary way of God's operation is not at all consistent with the text. Um, And in subsequent redemptive history, even when ordinary providence is at work, God works through extraordinary providence. And so there's no conflict between the two. There's also a logical fallacy here. And that is, you can never prove from a particular a universal principle. 
So if I say that some uh, Major League Baseball players are Latin Americans, you can even say the majority of Major League Baseball players are Latin Americans. Therefore, all uh, baseball players are Latin Americans. So you, you can't go there. And so to say that there was some ordinary prominence in creation, which I don't think there, uh, there was a great deal of it, is that all of God's creative work was that of ordinary prominence unless we have to rule out the supernatural from Genesis chapter 1. It is, in fact, a logical uh, fallacy. And then it's a major theological blunder. For him to say that providence, ordinary providence, was the major way that God operated is to deny what our catechism teaches and our creeds which make the distinction between God's work of providence and God's work of creation. They are to be distinguished. In the Westminster Journal, and E.J. Young says, creation and providence are to be distinguished. It's not our prerogative in the name of science to place limits upon God's creative power. And then the Westminster Standards clearly distinguish the two in chapters 4 and 5, Arger Catechism 14 through 20. Psalm 104 also, as it poetically describes creation, interacts then with the providential purposes of creation. And so, this has been brief and way too hurried, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, leg one is missing. Genesis 2 does not, because of a different structure, or because of defect, in any way invalidate Genesis chapter 1. The second argument is style. We've already touched on the first part of this. Style, they say, is exalted prose and pushes us to non-literal interpretation. Again, Klein. Literary character, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, prepares the exegete for the presence there of a stronger figurative element than might be expected were it prose. This passage is not, of course, full-fledged Semitic poetry, but neither is it ordinary prose. And we basically have uh, uh, answered that it's still prose, it's still very consistent with all of Moses' historical writing. Young says it's written in exalted semi-political language, nevertheless it's not poetry, and we looked at that uh, quotation a while ago. A second argument from style is the days are anthropomorphisms. Now an anthropomorphism is God using human form to describe himself. So when the Bible says that God has eyes or hands or feet, that's an anthropomorphism. Two Greek words, man and form. So God uses that figure of speech. But it's only when he talks about himself. When God talks about time, there's not an indication in Scripture that he's ever using some kind of figurative statement. Again, quoting Young, there's no example in Scripture that time indicators are ever used as anthropomorphisms. What then shall we say about the representation of the first chapter of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth in six days? Is this anthropomorphic language? We would answer that question in the negative. For the word anthropomorphic, if it's a legitimate word at all, can be applied to God alone and cannot be properly used of the six days. And speaking of six days, Moses may conceivably have been employing figurative, literal, or poetical language, but it's not anthropomorphic. Hence, we do not believe that it's accurate to speak of the six days as anthropomorphic mode of expression. So again, the whole idea of style that God's using here, uh, anthropomorphisms, that God's time, and Klein goes on to have another article where he has a two-tiered approach of history. It's very Bardian. So God operates at one tier, and it's reflected in our tier. And so... This is talking about God's tier. God's days are not our days, but he uses days so that we will get some vague idea of uh, what it is that he was doing. Third style argument is the time indicators are figurative. I've already shown you how literal they are, but again, he goes back to the seventh day. And he says, since the seventh day is an eternal period of time. That's proof that the days of Genesis chapter 1 
are then figurative periods of time. Now, he builds on this. Why does he say that the seventh day is eternal? Yeah, I'm going to give this to you. First of all, the lack of evening and morning. Second, he says, John 5.17, the Savior says that God works until this day. Thus, to work on the day uh, that is a typical day is not a violation. Hebrews 4.3 teaches the seventh day is a type of God's rest. God's rest is eternal. Um, it's still the seventh in sequence. Actually, I'm, I've, I've put these two things together. So, they'll say that the lack of evening morning, I've answered that already. They say that John 5.17, when he says the Father is working until now, proves that that is an eternal uh, rest. But in fact, it's simply showing that the cessation of God's work on day 7 was only from the work of creation, not from the work of providence. They say Hebrews 4.3 teaches that God's rest, um, the seventh day is an eternal rest. No, it's a type of eternal rest. And again, as we saw last night, you can't have a type if there's not two corresponding figures. If there's not a literal figure that can function then uh, as a, a type or an analogy of a spiritual figure. It's still the seventh in sequence. Notice this. God blessed a day. God sanctified a day. God didn't bless his rest. God's rest is blessed. Clearly the blessing and sanctification of the day shows that it is God's day. And then the proof from Exodus 20.11 and 31.17. Exodus 20.11, the six days of creative with the seventh day of rest is God's final proof for a seventh day Sabbath. Not a figurative Sabbath, but a real seventh day that is a picture to us of our entering into God's rest but the account itself in Genesis is not a record of God's eternal rest. I think Exodus 20.11 is very powerful as well as 31.17 refutation of this. I've already mentioned biblical writers use the term more than one way. And all the argument would prove is the seventh day is unique. If they were right, they would not make rest of the days eternal days. So if they're right about this day, there's no way again you reason backwards and say, the others have all the markers of literal days, so they can't be literal. No, that's not logical. And then it's very interesting. The literal creation week is the only pattern for the regular week in pre-Genesis culture. Almost all the cultures of the human race have a seven-day week. Where did that come from? If this is a literary account, then it couldn't have come from this account because this account was not given until um, 2,000 years later. No, it came from the fact, just as the flood comes from the fact, that all the races in their memory bank have the residue of these facts. So the second leg is missing. Now the third leg is structure. Here's where we get the name framework. And so, what they claim is that you've got light and day, and that is the kingdom of the rulers of sun, moon, stars. Sky waters separated, rulers of fish and birds. Dry land and sea separated, rulers of plants, uh, or animals, and man. Now, I already showed you last night there's a structure. But the structure is not nearly as tight as they want to make it. Notice the contrast of days one and two. And four. Day four is not filling day one. Day four is filling day two. Day two is when the firmament was made. Day four, the heavenly bodies are put in the firmament. So day one creates light. Yes, heavenly bodies are light. But in terms of a habitation and a ruler, it's two and four, not one and three. But the sea and dry land are done on uh, day Three, not on day two. They need to be done on day two if day five, the animal of the fish and the birds were to be the inhabitants of that which was done in the separation of the sea and the waters. 
And so the structure doesn't even work, and a number of writers have pointed that out. Now, the second structural problem, according to them, or argument, is the fact that we've got a clear overlap, recapitulation, replacement theory between days one and day four. But again, they're not paying attention to the text. Uh, look what day one. Now, to be light, there was light. And God saw the light that was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And all that language is, is very important. That separation was an act of creation. In other words, when we said there was nothing, there wasn't darkness either. There was simply nothing. God created light. God separated darkness from the light. God created darkness on the very first work, but he separates the two here. So it actually brings light out of darkness. And he names them. But now we come to day four. Let there be light. That's a different word. That is luminaries. Light bearers. In the expanse of the heavens to separate. Now here, God does the separation, right? Everybody see that? What does the separation here? The luminaries. And it has other purposes for luminaries. Signs and seasons and days and years. Let them be for luminaries in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth. Clearly now given this purpose, light is going to be transmitted through the luminaries onto the earth. And then God made the two great lights, the moon and the sun. He made the stars. He placed them in the expanse of heavens to give light, again, purpose, to give light on the earth, to govern the day, the night, to separate light and darkness. There's another thing that you can't see in the English. This word is the Hebrew word badal. We would have it B-D-L. with the consonants of badal. When that Hebrew word is used, the word is translated separate. When that Hebrew word is used, it always is used of things that are in existence. Always. So when it says that he placed them to separate the light from the darkness, the very verb that's used there is taking us back to the fact that light and darkness were made on the first day of creation because they had to be existent things to be separated by God. You follow that? Now they're being separated by God through the luminaries. Yes, sir? Um, when he says, when, when Klein says day four is a recapitulation of day one, is he in effect saying that day one and four are the same? Yeah. So he really doesn't have seven days. No. He only has four days. Now, the seven days are only a literary framework. But day four is day one, just recapitulated. Right. Day five is day two, recapitulated. Well, the difference is day five is an advance, where there's no advance on day four, outside of purpose being assigned. That would be the advance of purpose, but not the advance. And that's why uh, Collins talks about it, not origination, but appointment of activity. In Collins' view, there are not seven days. It's only a literary count. Either one. That's right. Same with, with Collins. Not only one of them have these acts as origination on the fourth day. But the seventh day, the seven days are a literary count. Collins' view makes a bit more sense. At least there's a model there of work and rest. Where framework is simply that God created and this is a way to make it memorable that he created. But according to Frank, according to the what we read in verses 14 and 19 actually took place at the same time. Yes. In terms of divine origination. This is not a different thing. No, Klein and Collins, both. Collins is even more emphatic. He says that there's not a different ontological origin. But this is merely a matter of stating the purpose. So in day four, the heavenly bodies were named and assigned purpose, but their origin was on day one. 
But that Badal, again, I got that from Kasuto, the, the Hebraic, Hebrew scholar, is in itself quite uh, uh, significant. So, um, I think I've given you all of these. Day four is also set apart by grammatical marks of sequence. So again, we have uh, in the text, then God said, that's that term, that vowel consecutive. The next thing that happened, so we have verse 13, there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then the next thing that happened, God said, let there be luminaries. Now that is a clear Hebrew marker. And so day four is also set apart by grammatical marks of sequence. You find that in right? Yes. All historical narratives. Right. Uh, yes, sir. How do the guys like Collins and, and uh, Klein deal with those Hebrew? Well, Collins' way of dealing with it, as I said earlier, is simply say, well, of course that's right, because this is what God, and how God revealed to us His work of creation, so we could pattern our seven days after His work of creation. And so Collins will say the revelation is broadly consecutive. Klein will ignore it completely. And so what you see more recently, you don't see people like my good friend Dr. Godfrey who was framework and now is analogical. They don't say, well, you know, you guys were right in critiquing framework. They simply shift and never mention they were wrong. And so... uh, What's made Collins' view popular is that at least he can say, I paid attention to the order of the text broadly. Uh, where Klein doesn't. Klein completely ignores all the markers of Hebrew grammar. I'll ask this question now. I'm going to answer it later. But maybe this is just a revelation of my simple nature or my challenged intellect. But chapter 5, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 5, says, So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and died. Mm-hmm. So the text seems to say that Adam was 930 years old when he died. How would we know how old? How could we know how old Adam was? If we don't know how long the sixth day was. If the sixth day was some unspecified amount of time. He was created early on the sixth day. He was created early on the sixth day. Yeah. How could we ever know how old or how many years Adam was? I'm sure I'm just not sophisticated enough to understand. No, I'm sure they. <laughs> I'm not either. That seems to be a problem to me. There's another problem here as well. Is that when you read uh, the chronology here in uh, Genesis five, there's no room to drive a Mack truck through it. You maybe could get a mosquito through it. Uh, Again, you've got all these things coupled. And this is what Usher used to get his date of the age of the earth. Now again, Reformed theologians starting with Green at Princeton and up to the current day simply say, well, there were gaps in the chronologies. Give me a break. Million year gap? Where is it? Exegetically, where is the gap? I asked Dr. Furtado that when he was still a six-day creationist. And he said, I, don't, I have to ask Meredith that question because I don't see how there could be any big gaps here. And suddenly, he bought into all the big gaps. That's the real gap theory. Is that when the text tells us these people lived so many years, uses the word day in terms of a limited lifetime. Now, literally, a thousand years is a pretty long lifetime. But... Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot about Genesis 5 that creates problems, I think, for, uh, for them. We'll see some other things, Lord willing, tomorrow in uh, Sunday school. There's also a progression in the purposes of the luminaries. All we have on day one is a supernatural division of light from darkness. And now we've got all these other purposes that are part of God's doing with luminaries. And of course, God's declaration is good. Remember, he did not make that declaration on day two. Now, why? Because the firmament did not have its major thing, which are its inhabitants. There was nothing good about the firmament that was bare and naked. And so, obviously, there was not sun, moon, and stars in the firmament after day one. And then there's the testimony of Scripture. It's a very interesting passage, and I... I, I'm preaching on the 15 verses that precede this, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. But uh, look what God, this is God talking to Job. Verse 19 of of Job 38. Oh, I skipped this Badal, the use of Hebrew word Badal. And now this. There it is. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the path to its home. Now, God is not here talking about the sun and the absence of the sun. He's talking about the ontological origin of light and darkness. Interestingly, two days people, in their commentary, Taylor Lewis, the meaning of the whole verse is as follows. Both light and darkness have a first starting point or a final outlet which is unapproachable to man and unattainable in his researches. As Genesis 1 says, the light is here regarded as self-subsistence, natural force, independent of the heavenly luminaries by which it is transmitted. And herein, modern investigation agrees, I'm sorry, this thing gets me confused. And here in modern uh, investigation agrees with the direct observations of antiquity. There's your quotation. It is talking about the ontological origin of light and darkness in Genesis 1. Later, in a modern series, Tyndale, Francis Anderson, In the story of creation, Genesis 1, light is the first thing made in contrast to primeval darkness. Here, verse 19, light and darkness are personified and associated as mysterious beings in whose place place is beyond man's reach. Genesis 1, God separated light from darkness. That is, he assigned to each a distinct realm. So that's evangelical history, and he goes backwards, Matthew Henry, of course you expect him to be orthodox, but here's a, a 19th century day-ager, and now this modern Francis Anderson, and they all are saying exegetically, God's question is talking about light created apart from heavenly bodies on day one. And of course we understand that. We know that electricity I've had one scientist tell me that light is when atoms are displaced, as they come back together, they give off light. There's all kinds of light. And we got, I believe, the whole electric magnetic field was created on day one. As I said, everything else, all the stuff created on day one. It wasn't unusual to Israel. They knew supernatural light without the sun, didn't they? In Egypt. It was black, dark everywhere except in Goshen. And there was a cloud of light over their camp at night. They wouldn't have stumbled to be taught that uh, light existed apart from the sun. And so the final leg is removed. Boom, boom, boom. I didn't do that. It's pretty good, though. Quickly, evidence for sequential narrative. I already mentioned the Vav consecutive. It is the significant mark of historical narrative and it runs straight through Genesis 1-1 through the end of the chapter. The ordinal number. First, second, third, fourth, fifth. 
evening and morning, as we talked about last night. And the cross references that we will look at uh, tomorrow. Also, there's no conflict between structure and sequence. God often acted in a structured manner to help us understand and remember. So I've already admitted that there was a structure between days one and three. But I've also shown you the record of each day is structured, thus discourse analysis. It's consistent with other passages of sequential narrative. Let's just, we won't do them this morning, but you can do this on your own. Take the flood and the plagues. There is a clear literary structure imposed on both of those accounts. But that in no way implies that the events did not unfold in the way that they are revealed. You can see that in the flood, where on the first plague, the fourth plague, and the seventh plague, uh, Moses comes to Pharaoh as he's going to take his morning bath. Plagues two, five, and eight, Moses goes to Pharaoh, but it's not why he's taking his bath. And then plagues three, six, and nine, he doesn't go to Pharaoh. He simply, and that's a, a very clear structure. The ten then being the climax. And so structure in no way militates against sequence. God is a God of order. And so, what we have here is structure for God's bringing cosmos out of chaos for all culture and to emphasize the unique nature of each day. And so you work it out, there's no other way it could work. Day one, God created light, energy, which we know is essential to all things. Day two, separation of the waters above from waters below, necessary for all the events that follow. Day three couldn't have happened before day two, could it? How's God going to separate the waters from the dry land if God not already separated the waters? The division of dry land from water is necessary for plants, right? God didn't make aqua plants exclusively. The work of day four depends on the work of day two. Firmament must be created before the heavenly bodies can be put into it. The creation of sea creatures, flying things, and animals in days five and six presupposes the work of day three. And so there's an order here, and it's the logical order. It is the order of scientific observation. It's the order that's being taught by the text of Scripture. All right, you had another question? I'm finished. I'm just going to make, make the point that you're saying that there are that some of these other theories with the Revolutionists are saying that because there is some sort of um, structure observed that therefore the author has ignored sequence right. and just arranged these things without regard to any kind of sequence so that there would fit a structure that they liked in order to make a point. Right. And you're making the argument that there may be a structure, but that doesn't mean that they ignored sequence. Right. Thank you. You made it better than I did. Yes, sir. Don't quite have to step out for just a moment, but I want to ask, coming back to 2-4, I understand you correctly from what you're saying, that because it is a summary statement of everything that's going to be introduced in the chapter, that then to say that as Moses used the word day there, and he's describing the whole creation process, we're understanding that way because it is poetic and it's a, an introductory statement, we're not going to understand that as in any way being contradictory. Right, but in fact, it's more than that. That would be, it'd be sufficient. But see, the Hebrew is the young, which as I showed last night means when. So in the day, the letter English translation is when God created, not from the day of God. And the young was always used that way. So it's used as a time indicator, not of some long indefinite period, but of a specific period. So yeah, it's the young. Other questions? This is probably too much and too jumbled this second hour, and I'm sorry, but um, 
In the book, it's all spelled out uh, a little more clearly than what I did today. All right. Shall we close in prayer? Sure. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our God and Savior. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful and a God who has accurately revealed to us his will, what we're to believe and what we're to do. We thank you that we've been reminded, even if we don't remember all the arguments, that Genesis 1 stands together with great integrity uh, as an account of a historical, orderly, sequential creation in the space of six days. We plead with you to have mercy this day on your church and bring her back to this very clear position. Correct our teachers and our seminaries that are teaching error and leading future ministers uh, into that error. Prepare us now for the Lord's Day, for worship and for further fellowship in your word with one another. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.